Well, church, I would ask you to turn, if you would, to a couple of different passages in, in the Bible. You can, turn, you can turn first to 1 Corinthians 12, and perhaps you still have a finger there from where Zach uh, read a moment ago. Then you can turn to Acts chapter 8 and just keep a, keep a place held there. Um, contrary to what the bulletin reads, uh, the sermon today is entitled, Three Pictures of the Gospel. I'm going to have to get on to whoever does our bulletin. <laughs> they need to get on the ball. Um, three pictures of the gospel. We'll begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I want to begin by asking you a question, though, about symbols and about pictures. How, how important are symbols? Um, and I don't know if you have a smartphone. Um, you, may, you may, from time to time, send an emoji, an emojicon, right? Send that to someone, and it has, in, in the little text field there on your keyboard, uh, some of your most recently used ones. And if you're not careful about where you, you put your thumbs, you might send the wrong emoji to the wrong person at the wrong time. Somebody might be telling you something very heavy and just incredibly burdensome, and then you send them the little emoji with the guy laughing so hard that tears are coming out of his eyes. That would be kind of inappropriate. Uh, or, or maybe you think about a map. Really, all a map is is one big symbol with a bunch of little symbols on it. I remember when I was 14 years old, myself and my dad and a friend of mine named Sam were on the Appalachian Trail hiking in, in Virginia, and we heard a woman shriek. We heard a woman scream. And uh, we went to where she was, and her husband was there, and she had so twisted her ankle that she had broken her ankle. Actually, we, we found out later quite severely. And she was almost at the point of drifting in and out of consciousness because of the pain, right? She's, she's in a lot of pain at a place on the Appalachian Trail in Virginia called Fat Man Squeeze, where these two big rocks come together, and it was slick, and she fell. And so this was in the days when cell phones were certainly mainstream, but they uh, were a little more primitive, and we were able to use our cell phone to get one little bar of service that came in and out and in and out, and I guess the wind was blowing the right way for long enough, we were able to get a, a 911 call out to tell them where we were, and we had to use this map and say, this is where we were. We had to use the symbols on the map and say, well, we're about E6, we're in that grid, you know, on the, on the AT, and, and so the, the symbols were very important. If you think about reading a book, all that letters are are symbols. And we have given them a sound, and we, when we put them together, we, we've given them a meaning. And, and so really, when you read a book, all you're doing is a really fast-paced interpretation of symbols. Symbols are incredibly important. They can even be life and death. Uh, symbols can be. Like bridge out would be a very important symbol to know how to read. But what if the symbols, what if the symbols become broken? What if you were taught when you were a child that the R makes an S sound or that the T makes a, a V sound and, and, you, and you're trying to make sense of how people are reading and how people are talking when, when you have a, a set of broken 
pictures, a set of broken symbols. Well, friends, this is exactly how uh, a number of places in the Bible treats symbols. God has given us symbols, and these symbols are pictures of the gospel. We're going to talk about three of them today. But we need to be very careful with God's pictures. Whenever God gives you a symbol, it points to a greater truth. And so we have to make sure that we preserve the symbol, we preserve the the picture, the window or the mirror, so that it doesn't give us a distorted view of whatever it is that God is trying to teach us. The first picture that we're going to look at is, is church membership. Church membership. So I've asked you to turn to to 1 Corinthians 12, and we're going to pick up in verse 21, right after where Zach left off just a moment ago. 1 Corinthians 12, 21 says this, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are actually indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are are treated with greater modesty, which which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, listen to this, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Let's pray together as we begin. Lord, as we look to these, your pictures, I pray that it would be clear what your pictures and what your symbols point to, and that we would be a church that would, that would keep the picture pure so that others can look on them and see the gospel. And Lord, how many conversions have been wrought by your Holy Spirit out of these pictures of church membership, healthily practiced, baptism done rightly, and the Lord's Supper, these beautiful pictures that point toward the gospel. Lord, I pray that we would discharge them and and, and preserve them well. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we talk about church membership, it's important to reflect on a couple of things. I've tried to emphasize what church membership is not at a number of different places. I've said it's not like a gym membership, right? The woods is full of people who have a gym membership and never use it, right? And they just pay that ACH, comes off of the bank account every month, and it feels good. Oh, I'm a member at the gym, Don't ever pump any iron, but I'm a member of the gym over there. It's not like a gym membership. It's also not like a country club membership where it's like you you affiliate so that you can kind of have your your pride is here. And this is the the group that I'm mostly like them, and that's how I maintain my social status at the the country club. It's also not like an HOA membership. I've, I've been a part of an HOA membership, and I've said to you before, it's not a very pleasant experience, right? Because everyone comes in and then they just kind of gripe and then they leave, right? Once or twice a year or however often the HOA happens to meet. But being a member of something, the word membership has kind of become a dirty word in our culture. It sounds exclusive and it sounds not right. But a member is, is just simply a part of something. So when we think about church membership, we should think a little more like, like a member of a family, 
a family member, or a part of the body, as, as Paul gives us, as God gives us through Paul, this picture of the body. And what we see here is a picture, he says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. We know this truth that whenever there is increase or, or lengthy distance from the body of Christ, there is going to be suffering. The body itself will suffer, and the, and the part that has become cut off, like if I cut off my hand, well, the body, my body is going to suffer, and the hand is going to wither up and, and die. It's not good for either part. So we have to ask this question, though. Is the, is the word church membership, is the term church membership even biblical? Right? If I asked you, where would you go in the Bible to find the church membership verse? Where would you go? You might be hard-pressed. I believe this gives us a picture of it. We have to answer this question. This question should not scare us because, if we're honest, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. Right? But we believe that the Bible teaches that. The Trinity is a word that we have used to, to describe the teaching of the Bible just as church membership is the word that we use to describe the teaching that is definitely in the Bible. The early church definitely knew who their people were. We know this from Acts chapter 6. There was a list of widows who were being neglected in the distribution. And so the church came together and deacons had to be set up so that these widows could be taken care of. The church certainly knew who their people were, who they were responsible to care for, and they knew, as a consequence, who their people were not. Also, in the, in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 18, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Titus chapter 3, there are instructions from time to time for the church to actually withdraw fellowship from people who were unrepentant. Right? We know. We know that believers are not perfect, but believers are those who repent. Believers are those who are grieved over their sin, and a person who is claiming to be a believer but who is not grieved over sin and who is not walking in repentance, that is a person who, as Titus, uh, Titus chapter 1 says, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him. And the church was given instructions, at least at these three places, in Matthew, 1 Corinthians, and Titus, to withdraw fellowship so that the person might be drawn to repent so that the person might be beckoned back to Christ, so that, the, so that the disapproval of the church might signal to them that they might be in disfavor with God and need to return to Him out of love, not out of judgment. So the church definitely knew who their people were, and they were given a charge over them, and they were, they were told to, to take care of them. And of course, in, in these very difficult matters, churches can't usually win. If a church sweeps sin under the rug, people say, well, they preach the gospel, but they're not living it. But then the, the moment that a church begins to address a sin, they say, oh, look at those Christians being all judgmental over there. Church can't win, so what do we do in a culture where we can't win? We follow the Bible. With these difficult matters in, in, in mind, we should, we should remember that the early church, the New Testament church, that we follow their pattern, they knew who their people were. And because of this, church membership was to be a picture on earth of what one day will be true in heaven. You see how it works? Church membership is a picture, it's a symbol, it's like a, it's like a mirror, and we don't want the mirror to be cracked so that it doesn't give a distorted picture. We can never know the hearts of, of people fully, but church membership is a picture here on earth of what one day will be true in heaven. One day in heaven... 
It won't matter if you were on a roll of a church, but it will matter if you were written in the Lamb's book of life. And so churches should be careful to make sure that their membership is made up of people who are walking in repentance from sin. I fear that there are many who are trusting in the fact that their name is on a roll at a church somewhere. And they think that because they're okay with that church, that they must be okay with God because of some hollow profession from 50 years ago and then a life that has not been marked by change, life that has not been marked by repentance. This is why we should be very intentional about how we, I think, set up new members for success. And I was just having a great time this morning in our, in our Next Steps class talking about how, of course, for the last hundred years or so, churches have focused so much on being large that they might have lost sight of being healthy. And church health must always come before church growth. That's a picture. It's a picture of, of church membership, that the, that the church here is to be. We're never going to be perfect, but we should be walking in repentance. The church, the local church in a community, should be a visible picture of the gospel to those who are around. That they can see people who are living at peace with one another. People who are uh, forgiving one another of sins, confessing their sins to one another, pushing one another toward Jesus. And so being healed, as it says in James. Picture number two is this. It's a picture of baptism. And this is perhaps one of the most vivid. It's a picture of baptism. And to that, we will have to turn to the book of Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 gives us another symbol. Much like my map when I was in the middle of the Lewis Fork Wilderness area in Virginia on the Appalachian Trail. We, we need a picture to show us where we are and what is true of us. And baptism is such a picture. Acts chapter 8, we'll be picking up in, in verse 26. Baptism is a clear picture of the gospel. And I pray that you would see, uh, that we would be able to see how that is. Acts chapter 8, verse 26 says this. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he arose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. So this is a clear picture of God going before even the missionaries to prepare the hearts of those who were to receive the gospel. This person is reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he said, and he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. Can you see God's providence written all over this story? About how not only is a man unprompted by anything other than the Holy Spirit, not only is this man reading the Bible and a missionary is providentially placed in his way, he's also reading from the Bible Isaiah 53, which is all about the Savior, 
all about the Messiah. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent. Imagine someone being confused and asking you, can you tell me what is this sheep being led to the slaughter? I would be like, I would love to tell you about the sheep, right? He's the true and better lamb caught in the thicket who was a substitute for for Isaac. He's the true and better, you know, uh, animal who was killed to give skins to Adam and Eve because blood had to be shed for their sin to be covered. He is Jesus whose blood was shed for you so that your sins could be covered. That's the lamb. He's the, the same one that it says in the book of Revelation. The lamb who though slain stands. And the eunuch said to Philip, verse 34, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, why? Because faith comes by hearing, we have to be sharing the scriptures. And beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he He commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. He immersed him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Friends, this is a beautiful picture of the gospel, and we see it in baptism itself. Not only does this man become converted after hearing the scriptures, out of hearing about the true and better lamb that was slain for us, the the one that that, that, uh, John the Baptist says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This very passage in the Bible where Charles Spurgeon was standing in what he thought was an empty sanctuary in London, and he was just practicing and hearing himself in the acoustics, much like we have here in these 1860s acoustics, these pre-Mike era uh, architecture, and, and, and uh, Spurgeon just got behind the pulpit and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and the janitor in the room behind him, unbeknownst to him, hit his knees and was converted of God because he heard the word of the Lamb. He heard the message that can save. God has given us this picture in baptism. Not only was this man converted, Not only did he he repent of his sins, but he knew, I have to follow Jesus in baptism now. Here's enough water. What prevents me? What prevents me? Of course, because I'm a Baptist, I have to make a couple of points here. Being immersed in the water and coming up out of the water is a picture of the gospel We love our friends and our neighbors and our family members of other denominations, and we walk charitably with them. We believe that they believe the same gospel, our our Presbyterian friends and our Methodist friends. But being immersed in the water is such a, a clear picture of what has happened in our transformation out of our old life and into our new one that we believe this is a picture that we shall not break. We don't have the right to tamper with this picture. It's, I mean, the, uh, think about what it says. When you, when you go down into the water, it pictures your death. You died with Christ. You were buried in the ground like he was, but just like Jesus was, you didn't stay there. You were buried in the grave with Jesus. You were cleansed by the, 
The washing of his blood, the water represents that. And you were raised to walk in new life. And it is a down payment on the second resurrection that we will experience one day as well. Because one day when Jesus returns to take his church home, we too will be raised from our graves if the Lord tarries. I need to make a case here because, of course, that's what I'm supposed to do. And I believe these things. In the New Testament, there are examples only of baptism occurring when a person comes to faith. Of that only happening when there is believer's baptism. There are no examples of infant baptism occurring in the New Testament. Some people make a case about the household being baptized. I think that's unconvincing because I think it just simply means that the whole household happened to believe. And so therefore they were were baptized. In the New Testament, there's evidence at a couple of different points of enough water needing to be there in order to do this. Acts chapter 8 that we just read is an example of that. And further, we hear phrases like here in Acts chapter 8 of going down into the water and Jesus at his own baptism came up out of the water, right? Lastly, and this is perhaps the linchpin, the Greek word for baptize literally means to immerse. Someone, someone asked me one time when I was in seminary what I wanted to write a certain paper on. And it had to be like a, you know, like a 30-page paper or whatever. And I said, well, I think I want to write the paper on baptism, and I don't think I'll need 30 pages. I think I'm just going to, I think it'll be one page, it'll be one line, and I'm just going to put the definition, like the Greek lexicon definition of the word baptize. It means to immerse, to go down into the water. Um, but it is, a, it is a picture of what has happened. A death has occurred, a cleansing has occurred, and now a raising to walk in new life has occurred. I just want to read to you from Adoniram Judson, uh, one of the first missionaries, a Baptist missionary, to go from the United States in the 1800s. Around 1812, he and his wife Nancy left um, um, as, as the first handful of missionaries to go somewhere. They went to Burma, which is... Uh, modern-day Myanmar is near uh, India. They were both congregationalists, which was very common in New England in the 1800s, which meant that they believed in infant baptism. And uh, Along the way, on the voyage to Burma, he was translating on the boat, he was translating the New Testament from Greek. And he kept coming up against this word, the, the word for baptism, which just literally means to immerse. And his wife, raised a, a staunch congregationalist, she would have no part of it. I don't know... If anyone has ever experienced that, your wife being very kind of, you know, reluctant to to something, but usually it's for your good. At at this particular place, it it wasn't, in my view. He kept telling her his concerns that, uh, that, that he had perhaps been wrong. And then finally, after much prayer and wrestling, they submitted to this view. They had to write letters back to their supporters saying, I'm sorry, we have become Baptist on the trip over here. We know this will mean that you will not send us any money, but we are convinced by Scripture of what it says. This is what she wrote after being very staunchly opposed to it. Nancy Judson said, Thus, we are confirmed Baptist, not because we wanted to be, but because the truth compelled us to be. I want to read to you these words, and I hope I can get through the second part of this. After six years, they had labored in Burma. After six years, they had not seen a single convert until this one young man named Wang Nao came forward. And I'm going to read a part of the letter that he wrote to the missionaries, asking, will you please baptize me? 
I believe that the divine Son, Jesus Christ, suffered death in the place of men to atone for their sins. Like a heavy-laden man, I feel my sins are very many. The punishment of my sins I deserve to suffer. And since it is so, do you, sirs, consider that I, taking refuge in the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ and receiving baptism in order to become His disciple, shall dwell with yourselves a band of brothers in the happiness of heaven and grant me the ordinance of baptism? It is through the grace of Christ that you, sirs, have come by ship from one country and continent to another, and that we have met together. I pray, my lords, th- I pray, my lords, three, that a sustained, that, that a suitable day may be appointed, and that I may receive the ordinance of baptism. I want to read to you these very moving words at the end of the chapter, and this is how uh, uh, Courtney Anderson ends the chapter. The whole party then left the Zayat, which is just like a hut. The whole party then left the hut and proceeded to a large pond nearby, on the bank of which stood a a huge statue of Buddha. Here with the Buddha benignly looking down on the scene, Adoniram led Wang now, waist deep into the water, immersed him and received him into the Baptist faith while a wandering crowd of gaily clad Burmans watched from the hill above. One baptism was not much to show for six years of work, but as Adoniram and Mwang now returned dripping to the mission house, followed by Nancy, the Colemans, and the rest of the company, he hoped, oh, may it prove to be the beginning of a series of baptisms in the Burman Empire, which shall continue in uninterrupted succession to the end of time. Friends, I hope you have had such an experience where you came to Christ looking up at your old idols. They had a real one, a picture, a real Buddha stood on the shore of the pond while he was baptized and he says, I turn away from you and I turn now to Christ. What a beautiful picture. I pray you've had such an experience in your life, even though our baptisms may not be quite as earth-shattering as, as that first one on the continent, as far as we know. The third picture is this, the Lord's Supper. Today we get to partake of the Lord's Supper, and it is a beautiful picture. It's a picture that we need to preserve, because if we don't preserve the picture, it will not image what it's supposed, it will not point toward what it's supposed to, to point toward. I want to tell you a story, though. I need to read the Bible first. Why don't we do that? 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Perhaps you still have a finger in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 11 is our passage about the Lord's Supper. And it says this. In verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions in order to show those who are true, who are genuine among you, that they may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. He's chastising them here. For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal. You see, the early church actually had it shared a meal together. We have the little symbols, the elements, but but they, they shared a meal together. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? 
No, I will not. And I, I realize now that I skipped over a verse. Let's, let's go in uh, verse 21. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. In other words, you're not coming together as a congregation. You're, you're forsaking the gathering together. You're not coming together and doing this as a family. Some are starting and, and they're, they're just going down the line. And I don't know if you've ever been to a church potluck. Sometimes it's not very good to bring up the rear because things have been picked over. So some of you are doing that. You're, you're going ahead and one goes hungry and another gets drunk. So they're taking the, the, the communion wine and they're, they're drinking it to excess. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup, and after saying, after supper, saying, The cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. For whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. And look at verse 30, what he says for those, those who have been taking this meal improperly. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Friends, this is a picture that God seems to be very passionate about preserving. I want to tell you a story about 1997. 1997, I was sitting in a church, and I know it was 1997 because it was before my conversion, but it was after we began going to a, a certain church that preached uh, the gospel very clearly. And I was sitting there, and I remember sitting in the congregation, and, and it was Lord's Supper Sunday, and the plates began to pass. And of course, I see everybody else grabbing stuff out of these plates, and I wanted to too. I'm, I'm seven years old at this point, or perhaps, perhaps eight. But as I began to reach for those elements, my mom put her, put her hand on my, on my arm, about, about at my elbow, and she said, no, son, this is not for you. And I said, why not? And she said, this is something that believers do. It's a picture of what has happened in the heart of a believer. You know what that moment did for me? What my mom putting her arm on my shoulder and saying, not yet, not yet. You know what that did for me? It caused me to begin to think about the seriousness of my condition with God. And, I th and before the year was out, I was converted. Because of the power, because of the power of this symbol. I saw that, that, the, that the bread is the, is the body broken, is, is the body of the Lord broken for me. And, and, the, and the blood is, uh, the, the, the juice is the blood of Jesus spilled for me. Stands in this, this, this one meal that we're going to share today, the Lord's Supper, stands in a long line of, of meals. It, in, in the Old Testament, they shared the Passover to remember what God had done. How the Passover was how they were, they were kept safe from the judgment of God. The Lord's Supper today is how we remember that we have been kept safe from cause of the body and blood of Jesus and one day when we are all gathered as the church in, immortal in heaven we will be there at the marriage supper of the Lamb there was a meal in the past and there is a meal coming in the future for those who believe in Jesus and today we celebrate that meal that stands 
in the middle. It reminds us of how serious our problem was. How far were we from God? We were apparently pretty far because it took the death of his own son to make us right. We can see the seriousness of our problem in the seriousness of God's solution. We were so far that the very death of the perfect son of God was what it took to correct the issue. And then we see here in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we should examine ourselves. Are we in the Lord? Have you come to him? Have you confessed your sins? Have you turned away? Have you, have you followed Christ in baptism? Are you unified with your neighbors? Are you unified with your brothers and sisters in Christ? And today, friends, I would ask you to partake in this meal if you're a believer, if you're a member of this church, if you're a member of a church that preaches the Bible, some other church, and your conscience allows you to take the Lord's Supper with us, I would invite you to do that. If you are reconciled to your fellow Christians and your neighbors, and if you are today remembering the broken body and the spilled blood of Christ, would you drink deeply of his blood and would you eat to the full of his flesh, knowing that it is only by the sacrifice of Jesus that you were able to be made right. Today I've given us...